0: So, this is going to be a new kind of episode. So, each week I've decided that I will have a topical episode where I just talk about the things that I like, and then an instructive episode where I will talk about more spiritually minded topics. So, um, astrology, um, things like hoodoo, uh, tarot. And I'm going to try to make these very instructive while also kind of deeping, deep diving into the subject itself. So there's a lot to be said about astrology, especially because it has made its way into the cultural zeitgeist in such a way that there's not a lot of regulation, but there's so much information. So what I plan on doing here is breaking things down topic by topic. So what we're going to talk about today is the most basic thing, and that's planets. So something that you all may know is your sun sign. That is based on about a one-month span between the middle of one month and then into the next. So, I am recording this on October 20th, and we are leaving Libra season and moving into Scorpio season. Mind you, I am a Scorpio. A Scorpio stellium, in fact. Um, And we'll talk about what that means later in this series but for now just know that uh, if there is more than one planet to look at in astrology um, if all of those planets are in one spot that's really really important so if you all know your sun sign that can give you a real basis for understanding astrology overall the sun rules our mind our will the urge to move forward the sun is the way that we kind of gauge the uh the life there are two celestial bodies that we call the luminaries the sun and the moon where your sun and is tells us the kind of core of you Who you are, what you want, and how you'll probably go about, like, interacting with your destiny, with the big questions. And that can often tell us how you'll react in certain ways. But we'll talk about the kind of real uh, gauge of how you'll react later. When you're done with the sun, You look to the moon. The moon is the receptive quality. So, if the sun is how you assert yourself and what you want to assert onto the world, the moon is like what the world is asserting onto you. In ancient astrology, the sun was associated with the concept of spirit. And that is, again, how you move through the world. In the moon, was associated with the concept of fortune and that's what the world kind of gives you the sun and moon are often associated with your relationship to your father the sun and the mother the moon now this can kind of change depending on who is or is not present in your life but oftentimes looking to the sun will tell you what your relationship is with your father And in further episodes, we'll kind of discuss how you can delineate that. But the point is, the moon operates as this kind of understanding that you have about, like, how do you want to be treated in this world? And how do you react when you aren't treated that way? The moon rules the emotions. And the emotions are something that you can't really control right you can manage them but you can't stop yourself from feeling sad or happy or lonely you just feel it the sun will tell you what you do but the moon is going to tell you what it is you're responding to The moon was thought to be one of the most important, if not the most important placement in your chart. And if the moon and the sun are configured in such a way that the sun is a little less powerful, you can often feel like your moon sign is the one that you resonate with the most. Now. A lot of the times there's more than one factor in that when we read a birth chart, but that can get really complex, so again, that's something we're going to put off until later. That's going to be kind of a running theme here. Many people listening to this are probably like, oh my god, I want to talk about all of it, and I feel like it's best that we really contain this particular episode to the planets, So, going forward, we're going to go through the planets based on their proximity to the Sun. The closest is Mercury. Mercury rules over our communication. That's internal and external, so it rules over our thought processes. Now, before I said the sun rules over the mind, and that's true, but it's more of the instinctual mind. It is the overall kind of infrastructure of the way that our mind works. The sun is that like basic urge and mercury is what happens when that urge is filtered through the way that we think. Now, what every single planet is going to show you is how you've been molded. So Mercury will show you what kind of intellectual kind of um, space you live in. So Mercury rules Gemini and Virgo. So say that Mercury is in Gemini, and that could mean that you grew up in a very communicative space, a place where people were constantly talking, thinking, um, imparting their thoughts on you and back and forth. It's, it's an extremely um, charged placement. But say it's one sign back in Taurus. And that could mean that while you're not non-communicative, that maybe that communication comes from a place of stubbornness, kind of, you know, bullheadedness. Um, It could also mean that you pay really close attention to the sensuality of speech. Uh, Taurus, Mercury could really love things like poetry and comedy and all of these other things that actually kind of produce an experience. And that can be molded by the environment in which you grew up. If you're the kind of person, if you grew up in a household where there was a very specific communication style, say you grew up in Jersey in an Italian family who were very expressive with their hands and very loud and maybe even argumentative, that molds you, and therefore it's going to show up in the chart. So Mercury, because it never leaves the side of the sun, or at least it doesn't move too far away. It is the closest thing to the sun, and so it will never be more than two signs away from the sun. And because of that, it's often true that people have Mercury placements that are the same or extremely close to, their sun placements. What this winds up meaning is that a lot of people have tightly connected communication styles to their will. I want it, therefore I ask for it. And that is essentially a reflection of how we as human beings are kind of wired. As infants, we have wants, needs, ultimate urges, even from the very first moment we open our eyes. And whether or not those urges are met often mold how we communicate. So as you look at a Mercury placement, your own or someone else's, ask yourself, how does this person go about communicating their needs? And do they communicate at all? <music> Moving on to Venus, which is a lot of people's favorite planet. It stands between Mercury and the Earth, which means that it is one of the closest to us and also one of the closest to the Sun. It's also, interestingly enough, right, the brightest star. So what exactly does that mean? Well, Venus is deeply impactful, probably because of its proximity to both the the Sun and to us. The closer something is, think about the moon. The moon has the ability to change the tides, right? We watch it happen. It has the ability to change women's bodies. It has the ability to change the way that we react. I mean, it is a documented fact that, you know, every ER knows that when a full moon happens, shit gets real dicey. So... Let's think about that when it comes to Venus. Venus is close to us, and it exists in the space where it's not in the heat of the sun, but it's also catching some of that warmth. Venus, as you might already know, is about love, but it's also about harmony. It's not near anything that can really harm it so it's all about the positive to some degree it's about harmony and also the concept of uh of experience venus pushes you to go out into the world and not only love other people but love the world Now, depending on where Venus is, that can be difficult. Which means that, in some ways, Venus also rules disharmony. You might have heard recently, or in the past few years, about Venus, or even Mercury, especially Mercury, in fact, being retrograde. And what this means is that the planet appears to be moving in the opposite direction than it should be and this to some astrologers is a bad thing and to other astrologers they just feel like it's the planet doing what it feels like doing hands off and at its core that's probably the the least that we can say about it is that the planet is hands off and when that happens when venus isn't doing its job you see massive divorces You see the kind of um, destruction of war. We see people being disharmonious. And so in a way, Venus has the ability to both give and take away harmony. And if it's retrograde in your birth chart, it has the ability to give you what you've been working toward. So... If Venus rules the sensual, going out, loving the world, it also kind of rules money as a byproduct of that. It rules the things that allow you access to that kind of love. And unfortunately, in a capitalist society, that does mean money. But it also can mean your the material comfort of your home. It can also mean the material comfort of your Car, it can mean um, the quality or even quantity of your friendships. Now, friendships are more of a Jupiter thing, so we'll get to that later. But Venus plays a role there as well. If you have a Venus that is compatible with your friend's Venus, the two of you know how to receive love in the same way really having compatible placements of any kind with a friend is going to strengthen that friendship to some degree but venus has a way of at the very least making it so that two people can better understand each other's wants even if they can't necessarily give those wants to one another venus does not rule over the giving of love Venus rules over how you want to be loved. Going back to the concept that all of these placements show you something about how you were kind of developed in the world. Someone with a, a really strong Venus could likely have been in a situation in their childhood where they understood the um, kind of concept of love in a way that allowed them to keep giving it and receiving it. Because when we're young, we give love kind of unconditionally because we don't know any better. So everyone is someone that we could love. And when that love isn't returned, it often will be signaled by a Venus that has a hard time working because when you are a child and you're trying to learn what love is you experiment with it by giving it and if you don't receive it in return you think that you've done it wrong so venus shows you what you've been taught about love fiery, passionate Mars. Now, a lot is given to Venus around the concept of love, but Mars is also a love planet. The ancients believed that in a woman's chart, their husband would be found in the Mars placement. And in a man's chart, the uh, husband, uh, sorry, wife, would be found in <laughs> And I'm sorry, I'm gay. Like, I don't know these roles. But uh, in A Man's Chart, it was out that his wife would be found by Venus. And in modern day, right, we're more likely to be like, well, like, what kind of energy are you attracted to? And that's a better way of viewing it. But the point is that masculine love is found with Mars, And that's kind of a beautiful thing, if you think about it, because Mars is all about fire, war, aggression, assertion. It is kind of the boiled-down version of the Sun. And Venus is kind of the boiled-down version of the Moon. They're concentrates. If the Moon wants you to kind of experience things emotionally then Venus kind of wants you to experience things physically and if the sun wants you to um, kind of have an urge to move and and, and, and get something Mars is like we're going to do it it is going to be the impulsive let me go out and grab it but it's also the long term Mars is motivation, motivation, motivation And you're motivated partially by love, sometimes by lust. And Mars, both Mars and Venus, rule lust as well. Venus rules the kind of lust that is the experience of sexuality, while Mars rules the kind of lust that is the more utilitarian sexuality. I need to have sex right now. And oftentimes when the kind of Martian energy is too high, that often indicates the, the kind of horrors of war. But m- most people who have a real understanding of Mars's placement in ancient times, Valens would, t- would say, Ptolemy would say, all of the ancients would say that Mars while it breeds some really terrible behavior, is also connected to the concept of love and marriage and union. Because there's really no Mars if there's no Venus, and there's no Venus if there's no Mars. Just like there's no moon if there's no sun, and there's no sun if there's no moon for us. Now, the fact is, that this is the perfect time to kind of discuss the gendering of planets. Unfortunately, the ancients weren't uh, particularly shy about gendering, and uh, there's also alternative methodologies for understanding the planets. So, let's talk about that. Masculine, quote-unquote, masculine planets Mars, the Sun, Saturn, and Jupiter are all kind of considered to be assertive principles. And all that leaves behind, really, is Venus and the Moon as, quote-unquote, feminine planets, and Mercury as the neutral planet. And this is where things get really complicated, right? Because if there's a neutral planet, then what does that mean, right? Does Mercury rule over the non-binary? And I think the reality is that these are just kind of outdated terms. Essentially, all of these are inside of you at any given time. There is no shortage of Venus placements for men or those who consider themselves as men or those who are um, just masculine presenting like it, it, that doesn't degrade the Venus placement and oftentimes what you might find in a chart is that uh, you'll find a pretty strong Venus in a more secure male's chart. It's a very interesting thing to watch. My point is that the gendering is pointless, and I tend to use the concepts of assertiveness, where the ancients would have said masculine, and receptiveness, where they would have called it feminine. And you can still just call Mercury neutral, and I don't think the Mercury minds. The point here is that when you remove the kind of honestly overly gendered misogynist and misandrist kind of undertones of these planets you are left with the fact that in everyone is a certain amount of everything This is my favorite planet, Jupiter. Jupiter exists just beyond the uh, asteroid belt so that there is a line of demarcation between Mars and Jupiter, a line between the planets that are closest to the Earth and possibly most effective on the earth, and the ones that kind of stand as stabilizing features in the universe. Jupiter is associated with Zeus, but also with Marduk, the Babylonian god-king. Jupiter rules how you rise up in this world. It rules the concept of good spirit we talked earlier about, Spirit being uh, the concept of the the urge, the way you move in this world, and if you have a strong Jupiter, Jupiter kind of makes you a positive mover. Now that doesn't mean that you start off that way. Jupiter is about learning, so if it's prominent in your chart. What it can do is kind of force you to learn lessons, but not just any lessons. Lessons for a positive experience. We'll talk about Saturn and how it does the kind of, I don't know, maybe opposite. But Jupiter, the best way to describe it is effervescent. It's like a bubbly soda. You drink it and there's the flavor of it but there's also the experience of it right so it kind of mixes the mars mercury and venus together in a way with a whole lot of venus and so it's this thing that kind of creates a philosophy so say that you, let's compare this to mars Mars is about a motivation. What makes you move forward? And maybe that's love, but maybe that's also the concept of war, of battle, of whatever, right? Well, Jupiter, if it's in the same spot, is going to say, sure, you're motivated by this thing. But what is the philosophy around which you actually kind of go after it? Now, that might sound to you like, oh, but isn't that the sun? No, the sun is the basic structure. So the sun is the ultimate urge. The the Mars placement is the motivation. And then Jupiter kind of becomes the overall plan, the dream, the hope. Because you can be urged towards something and motivated to do it. But if there's no hope, there's no faith, there's no dream, then why would you actually even go through with it? Think about waking up or or looking around and it's midnight and you haven't eaten. Maybe you're a little high, I don't know. But maybe you've decided at this point, That you are going to go to a fast food restaurant. Now, you have the urge to do it. You have the motivation. You are willing to get in your car, right? But it's snowing outside or something, and you don't really have the plan for getting there and back. Maybe your car isn't great on the ice. So... Do you really have any faith in that car? And if you don't, then maybe you stay your ass at home and find something in the refrigerator. And sometimes that's fine. Wherever your Jupiter placement is, it's going to be the place where you have a real dream about its outcome. So that Jupiter becomes this place of spirituality and of faith and a philosophy of, of the future. It is the thing, it is the place that you want to rise toward. you're rising towards something, it's often the concept of abundance. And that's kind of what Jupiter does, right? It's about gaining something. Gaining a lot, in fact. But Saturn... Saturn is about restricting things. Now, that's not always bad. Sometimes Saturn is the opposite of excess. So in a world where capitalism takes so much from us, where white supremacy takes so much from us. Saturn becomes this thing that if you follow its teachings, it can show you how to survive in that scarcity. Now a lot of people, a lot of spiritualists, are going to kind of look down upon what they call the quote-unquote scarcity mindset. And sure, if you have no hope, if you have no faith, if you don't have that Jupiter, you're not going to move out into the world and get what you want. But Saturn is not just about a lack of hope or a lack of faith. It's about a, a... an abundance of practicality saturn wants you to make something stable and that's really the company line when it comes to astrologers and saturn it's about stability no matter what the ancients actually believed it to be the planet of death which is interesting because it actually finds no joy In the house of death we'll talk about houses later but it actually finds its joy in the place of the self undoing now that may sound counter to what i've just said that it's not so bad but think of saturn as the thing that is putting restrictions on you we've talked about what the outside world does to us But Saturn is about bad spirit. It's not the outside world, it's what you do. Spirit being how you move in the world. So, Saturn isn't just how the world puts its restrictions on you. It's predominantly about how you put restrictions on yourself. Now, you can look at the Saturn placement and you you can go, why do I do that? And oftentimes, right, a really strong Saturn, a Saturn that's really happy, that can be a Saturn that was, like, well-taught. You learn restrictions in a good way. Someone taught you how to... Restrict something in a positive way that isn't overly restrictive. Someone taught you how to be moderate, not overly conservative. So, what happens is you kind of become this person who self modulates. You stop yourself from overeating, if that's something that you feel like you do. You stop yourself from smoking too much. You stop yourself from drinking too much. You, you stop yourself from maybe even working out too often. You stop yourself when you know your boundaries are there. And that's the thing about Saturn, right? It's It was thought to be the planet of death. And really, that's because... It's the idea that the thing has stopped where it was supposed to stop. So Saturn, yes, is the kind of opposite principle of Jupiter and maybe even Venus. But the reality here is that Saturn doesn't say no. It says maybe not right now. Or maybe not too much. Or maybe this thing isn't enough. Saturn wants you. If you're dealing with a bad Saturn, with a Saturn that's unhappy in your chart, the key to that Saturn placement is often to recognize what Saturn isn't limiting for you. Or what it's limiting too much of. And what you're limiting for yourself. So before we move on to the outer planets, I want to stop and talk about the nature of the planets we've talked about so far. So there are two kinds of planets outside of the kind of um, assertive and receptive modality. There are malefic and benefic planets. Now, the sun and moon don't actually fall into either of these categories, and neither does Mercury. The sun and moon, because they are life-givers and life is neither positive, benefic, or negative, malefic. And Mercury is just painfully neutral and therefore kind of reacts to the rest of the world. And because it's so close to the Sun, it makes a lot more sense, right? Because if the Sun is just a neutral life giver, then it makes sense that Mercury being so close to that kind of energy would kind of neutralize out it would burn away to some degree all these other properties that doesn't mean that mercury can't be problematic it's just that it's kind of like a mushroom it takes on the flavor of the things that it's around so thinking about the malefics saturn mars mars is thought to be malefic because it also rules conflict and saturn Rules the concept of restriction, possibly even death. The benefics are Jupiter and Venus, because Jupiter is about um, the expansion of things, uh, the rising towards something, and Venus is about the the love and positive kind of reception of things. Now, the real kind of measure of these things is how happy they are in your chart now further down the road we'll get into more complex concepts of that happiness versus unhappiness but for now just understand that if a benefic is aspected by a malefic and the benefic is less powerful for some reason then that's going to be a really unhappy benefic so if venus is in scorpio it's naturally in a place of confusion because scorpio is ruled by mars and mars does things differently than venus so venus is a little unhappy if it's aspected in some way and we'll talk about aspects in the future but if Essentially, it can be seen by Saturn and Saturn is in a place of is a in a place of power well then Venus is going to experience an unhappiness because a more um, brutal kind of energy is pouring down on it and the same can be said in the reverse if Saturn is in a place where it's not necessarily able to kind of express its uh saturn-ness and is aspected by a benefic jupiter or venus well it could be a little less saturny less restrictive a little kinder Let's talk about the outer planets. The outer planets are called the outer planets because they are not close enough to be easily seen with the naked eye. The first planet to be found beyond Saturn was Uranus. Now this is a really interesting kind of uh, planet because it's all about the quirky. Some believe it to be the planet of revolution. That doesn't really track with the kind of lowest common denominator significations that we have for it. We know that it rules sudden change. Now, that can include revolution, but it doesn't necessarily rule the concept of revolution we've talked about that on this podcast that revolution has all of these different kind of methodologies revolutionary love revolutionary masculinities and femininities like the, the revolution of shaking things off even in, in the halloween uh, episode we kind of talked about what how revolutionary it can be just to understand what it means to be a white person, right? So that's not necessarily inherent to Uranus, and this is where astrology is limited, mostly by the fact that it is kind of run by whiteness, because whiteness thinks of revolution as the moment of violence rather than the sustaining of a new thing. So, what does Uranus really rule but moments? And that's kind of keeping with the concept of, like, how it was found. It was this thing that was thought to be one thing, and then, you know, suddenly it was this new planet. And it breaks thousands of years of understanding. It doesn't necessarily sustain it by itself, right? In fact, it's hard to sustain it because not everyone at the time had the ability to see it. Sometimes Uranus, if I have read the reports right, can be seen, but only at very specific angles in very specific places on Earth. By and large, the majority of people cannot see Uranus with their naked eye or even binoculars. You have to use a high-powered telescope to see it with any clarity on any given day. And that's what makes it hard to sustain. Because the ancients just looked up at the sky and saw these little white dots or these dots with various hues or whatever in these different positions, and they studied that. But Uranus was the first star where you had to add something else. And for some people, that means that it also rules over technology. Now, I don't necessarily kind of agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that Mercury mostly rules over technology and we see how that works when mercury goes retrograde most technologies use used for communication in some way shape or form and it's run off of a flow of information you can turn something on but if it doesn't have anything on the hard drive what exactly is it doing And even the invention of these things that don't require any, like, input of information do require the kind of thought processes that Mercury is able to produce. And that's why I do believe that it is closely related to Uranus, because you have to ask these questions. So Uranus kind of rules over the sudden thought, the sudden change in perception. Uranus is the thing that we work up to with our Mercury placements. Those moments where things just kind of click for us. Neptune Neptune is a really interesting kind of planet because it's supposed to rule over the ambiguous, the illusion, the kind of confusing aspects of the world. But because it's gaining in light, it seems, it may actually be a benefic planet like Venus or Jupiter. Uranus, from what I could tell, is neutral very much like Mercury. But Neptune seems to be beneficial in that it offers us a space to kind of just be delusional, to craft our own realities. Think about the happiest person you know Oftentimes, that happiness comes from them not looking too far into the world. And if you're listening to this podcast with any regularity, it's probably because you're not that kind of girl, right? You think about the world deeply. You think about it with some kind of prescience. You think about it with intent. And Neptune says, no, imagine a world that doesn't fucking exist. Now, that, too, is very revolutionary because the idea of Neptune is that it melts the boundaries. So, thinking about Angela Davis, who once said that, you know, revolution is, like, requires a revolutionary imaginary, right? Like, you have to have an imagination that can allow you to do things like abolish prisons because if you just simply abolish the prison and then you have no like kind of way of managing the the people that are within this prison who are coming out of it or people who we would normally incarcerate then you don't actually have a plan and neptune is kind of like well let's dream up one out of thin fucking air And I know that sounds like it's like, oh, that's really bad. But it's like, well, if you can imagine the most outrageous concept. And that tells you, it gives you kind of a goal. And you may never meet it, right? You can shoot for the stars, right? But maybe you hit just the moon. So... What Neptune allows us to do, I think, is something very similar to Jupiter, where Jupiter wants us to rise to something very specific, a goal, a dream that feels attainable. Neptune wants us to imagine what the greatest possible outcome could be, or even the worst, so that... If you don't hit the greatest, you still get higher than you are right now. And if you don't hit the worst, you're relieved because, well, things didn't go as bad as you thought they would. Neptune is about the movie, not the reality. So many of you who are listening to this may think of California in a certain way. And I believe that Neptune and California are very closely related. But so many of you may think of California in a certain way. Because of movies. Because of what you see on social media. But it's not that way. Not in reality. In reality, Los Angeles is just uh, New York where the sun makes it so that the smell of piss rises. Beyond that, they're the same. Just more tan people in one. And finally, and if you have made it this far, thank you. Um, Pluto. Pluto is some special shit because it creates debate. It creates whole subdivisions of astrology. It is this thing that people have been trying to figure out since the day it was discovered. And really, there's only one signification that seems to make sense, and that is ascension. A sustained ascension. Personally, I believe that Pluto is malefic. I believe that Pluto is, to some degree, going to cause conflict. Because anytime someone rises, someone else has to either stay where they are or fall lower. But someone has to be angry that they aren't where this other person is. There will always be a power imbalance between the person who is deeply affected by Pluto and the person who was not. If Saturn, looking at other malefic planets, right? If Saturn is the thing that wants you to learn a lesson, slow and steady, and kind of build, some, build a good foundation, Pluto is the thing that wants you to take that that, that foundation and transform it into something powerful. Because if you have that foundation now, you can now go out into the world, right, knowing that you have something to return to. So some associate pluto with the concept of power and i think that that's somewhat true but again ascension a sustained ascension ascension is more the right term here because you can gain power from saturn or um, mars or even jupiter or venus right you can gain a lot of power from those principles right but pluto is about maintaining power Where Pluto is in your chart is where you will always be able to get what you want ultimately. Pluto moves very slowly. About 20 years through one sign. Uranus is 7. Neptune, I believe, is 14. Um, But Pluto? She's a slow girl. Very slow. You will only see Pluto move through the signs maybe three or four times in your life and in those times you will see the major posts of history when pluto moves from one side to another that often signals a paradigm shift globally it can often tell you that war is coming and that's why Each generation has a war. Well, that's at least something that is correlated to the fact that each generation has a war that they can ascribe to themselves. And so Pluto represents the struggle for that sustained power because When you think about war, right, it's multiple governments, multiple bodies of people who are in positions that are sustained sources of power. You can be totally, and I mean dragged out of office, right? But you'll never lose your power. Look at Donald Trump. The man underwent, what, two impeachment hearings? And then even after is now undergoing a, an indictment. But he can still tweet today and possibly change the entire DAO. He can build and, and destroy countries still to this moment. That is sustained power. Now imagine multiple of those. Going at each other, and that's what war is. So, Pluto shows us how we rise to the most stable part of our lives. So, this will be a weekly segment. This will be a time where we can learn, and maybe you'll kind of refine your own thoughts on these things. This is just my take on the planets, and next week we'll talk about the houses, and then the week after that we'll talk about aspects, and the week after that we will talk about um, all kinds of ancient techniques, and hopefully months from now I will have amassed a kind of collection of lessons that people can refer to and say is this my understanding of this technique or concept don't think of this as like a prescriptive kind of thing because it's not think of it as a thing that creates um A dialogue. So. I will be doing these. um, Weekly. Um, Likely on Tuesdays. So that. You have something on Tuesday. And then something on Thursdays. Which is the normal podcast. And if this goes well. I might go ahead and expand. This. And once. Maybe we're like out of the astrology kind of thing, right? Once we get way out into the weeds, then I think I'll kind of move a little further over into tarot. And I guess if someone is like, hey, I really want to know about tarot, can you do a separate segment about tarot specifically? I am not opposed to that. Although I do believe that once you know a lot about astrology, it can help you to understand about tarot, because every single tarot card is kind of grafted against a different astrological placement, essentially, or at least a piece of of astrology, either a planet or a zodiac sign or a decken within a zodiac sign. So um, I think that it's worth learning about astrology first, right? And having having tarot in that kind of um, conceptual framework. But hopefully you made it through this long-ass episode. Uh, long for me, I guess, because most of my episodes are about 25 minutes. Um, and hopefully these lessons are beneficial to someone. At the very least, it'll... Help me to further refine what I believe these planets are about and the zodiac is about and astrology in general is about. So, thank you. I look forward to going on this journey with everyone.